The Holy Spirit came from heaven and filled them all together, so that they had cloven, fiery tongues and preached boldly, very differently than before. And everyone was amazed and astonished at it. The Spirit came, poured himself upon their hearts, and made them different people who loved God and gladly did what he wanted. This is nothing else than the Holy Spirit himself, or at least the work that he does in our hearts. He writes nothing but fiery flames into a heart and makes it alive, so that it breaks out with fiery tongues and busy hands and becomes a new man who feels that he has a completely different understanding, spirit, and mind than before. Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz to talk about Luther's Church Apostles. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Hey, glad to have you. Always a pleasure. Zelwyn, how's the weather up in uh, the up in uh, Siberia there? <laughs> we actually are in a little bit of a, I guess you'd call it a warm spell in the middle of early winter. The snow has melted away and we might be able to get some of the, the stuff, you know, some more stuff done before deep winter sets in. But we're just kind of resigning ourselves to the uh, the gloom that is coming, I suppose. <laughs> that you're going to wrap yourself up in and rub on your face as soon as it gets there. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's good. Adam, how's the weather in uh, Fort Wayne? Probably about like it is where you are, but uh, it, the sun came out today, so I'm thankful for that because I was not created to live under so many clouds. So uh, I've been missing sunlight for three, four days. So You got to uh, get that vitamin D, folks. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the, the Siberian thing is more than a meme with Zelwyn. There's, there, there's actually an infestation of trees that were imported from Siberia in True North story. Dakota. I, I learned this. Uh, it's, it's more than a meme. He's a cryptid and it's really Siberia. Well, and, you know, although, Adam, you and I are the, of the founding class of Americans, it was Zelwyn's people that crossed over on the land bridge and, yeah. uh, and no, beat us. No, that's legit. That is legit. Yeah, yeah. I saw I saw Zelwyn eat an elk heart just raw, straight up when I was there. So <laughs> he ferments bird carcasses and uh, bladders and things. It's uh, strange. We had we had to eat on the way home from Bismarck, so we just hunted down some food. Right. Just- <laughs> Zelwyn only eats meat raw or jerked. Either right. way. Yeah. Legit. Yeah. <laughs> and when the people die, they just put them on these platforms and expose their bodies to the elements. That's right. They elevated burial. Yep. So, uh, Z I'm... is working on the missile for that. It's going to be included <laughs> in the in the Dakotan Siberian missile coming soon from uh, Word Fitly Press. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how I am both cryptid and Eskimo at this point, but <laughs> well, if you have to spell it out for you. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Implying there's a difference. Right. right. Have you ever seen an Eskimo? The photograph clearly. <laughs> uh, we're getting letters story. now. We're going to get letters. <laughs> I don't actually think you can say Eskimo anymore. I don't know what I'm allowed to say. Can you say Eskimo, Adam? What's the rule? Uh, I'm not a good guy to check with on what is it. Is it Eskimo? I think it's Eskimo if you're talking about the indigenous ones and uh, not when you're talking about the dessert. I think if you spell it E S Q U I M E A U X, it's fine. <laughs> that, that French feel though right. exactly 
Okay, Eskimo it is. Um, <laughs> well, well, if we're still platformed, fellow Lutherans, today we're going to talk about Luther's church postals. And uh, before we get into the, the the meat and potatoes of the text, let's just talk a little bit about what a what is a postal. Somebody tell me. Well, it's not a normal word, and uh, that's because it's derived from a Latin word meaning after these, like after these words. So when they're first printed, you're going to have the epistle reading for that Sunday or the gospel reading for that Sunday printed, and you'll get this in some editions of Luther's. And then after that is going to be a sermon. And so it's a genre of liter- of preaching literature that arises basically once the lectionary in the West sort of sets sometime in the, in the Middle Ages. Zawin might know that better than I do, but, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's especially kind of a late medieval phenomenon. It's, um, but the idea is, is that because you have the lectionary, because preaching was generally quite poor in those times, and education <laughs> was generally quite poor, yep. the idea was is that if you could at least read, here's a book of sermons that you could then pick up and read. And there was, there was a whole category of these kind of late medieval sermons. And I think Luther himself wrote these things probably because of conditions he found like when he was investigating for the small catechism, right? Yeah, because you get you get production of I believe the winter postal covering what we would think of as like the half year of Christ in the church, so running from Advent through Pen- to Pentecost. I believe the first edition is 1522, but you get revision and reproduction and expansion of the church postals throughout his life. I think the last edition is a couple years before his death. So he's always, he's always building on it. And he does recommend in different times and places, you know, basically if you, if you can't preach on your own, because you know that you should have better content, but you can't because you were poorly educated or you whatever, <laughs> just reading this would be better than nothing. And that that's actually a strategy that happens in the church of England as well with what is not called apostle, but the book of homilies is officially approved in the Church of England for similar purposes. You know, it's it's post Reformation. We 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 have to we have to preach Protestant doctrine, but we know our guys are really not that capable. So let's give them a book where they're going to stay inside the bounds as long as they read these sermons. Yeah, I mean, you you also have that notion of well, I mean, seminaries, for example, and clerical education of that level is also very much a post-Reformation phenomenon. Right. So you're you're basically dealing with clergy who, in some cases, like Luther found out, could barely read. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's just like, what do you do with that? And right. so he's, he's, he's giving them this help as a way of saying, okay, let's at least give you some good content. Right. Yeah. yeah they're, they're addicted to their phones. They have no liberal arts education. <laughs> Their vocabulary is relatively small, so reading would be reading somebody else's stuff would be better than nothing. So, exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the that's the postal genre. So Luther, it, like the catechisms, Luther's postals are not unique as a as a literary form, right? And I guess it's. Maybe it's worth saying, because I think we kind of hinted at this a couple episodes ago, too. I mean, this is not a practice that we would encourage people to imitate today. I think <laughs> I think Luther's postals are useful for learning something about how Luther preaches and also for improving our preaching. But I don't think it would be good for you to get up and to start 
blasting about monasticism and the Pope, you know, using Luther's words. It's just, <laughs> it's just not going to go well. <laughs> I, uh, I have seen it done. And, uh, before I was, before I went to seminary, I filled in, but I wasn't allowed to preach my own stuff, which is a good idea. And okay. I read a Luther sermon to the sure. congregation and it took 40 minutes and it was atrocious. They were so bored. And there are probably a lot of different reasons why that was. But one was none of the application made any sense. Right. Right. And so when you're when you're thinking about imitation, you know, it, it has its bounds because especially the stuff that's supposed to carry home well in Luther often doesn't for us. Right. Because the, the times have just become so different. The Pope isn't the Pope anymore. You know, he's just not what he used to be. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> it's a Jesuit plot is all it really is. But. <laughs> uh, uh, so, Willie, I figured that would draw you out talking about Jesuits and plots. But well, are you... <laughs> implying anything isn't a Jesuit plot, you know? <laughs> we know. We know who the real Jesuits are, so. That's right. I miss the days when we had legitimate Jesuits instead of whatever those things are today, you know, but maybe that was the goal all along. Who knows? Who knows? So now this is all a good discussion because imitation may well be the sincerest form of flattery, but uh, pure imitation is also the most obvious form of laziness. And and so (laughs) we can... We can fall into this trap of, of oh, I'll just uh, cut and paste a sermon for Sunday, or or, or more obviously, uh, lug a volume up into the pulpit and just read from it. And by uh, by, by a volume, you mean Concordia pulpit resources? Uh, correct, a thin right. volume, a quarterly. Right. Uh, right. This isn't seasonal. Like, this isn't like the old days when they would lug up a gigantic tome and read from that. <laughs> respect. We have, I mean, respect. Uh, yeah. I mean, it it is kind of funny. We sort of eschew this idea that we would read these patristic sermons on certain days, which would actually be kind of edifying. Right. But but we are going to read something from uh, like 1997. (laughs) I mean, okay, that's that's fair, and I think it applies not just to preaching but also to Bible class when you use pre-prepared studies in the same way that if you use pre-prepared sermons. And this is an old problem because that. The magazine that Zalwin and I, among others, are working on translating articles from, we're not using any of the canned stuff. We're using the original articles that are, you know, about preaching, but they aren't sermons themselves. But that that magazine was called the Yellow Bible because it came in yellow paper covers and people would lug it into the pulpit and preach from it. <laughs> so that's, you know, this is a this is an ongoing perennial problem of you know, the, the stupidity of imitation, uh, in this way. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I but can't I, even imagine. There, there's, there's, I mean, there's always, whether you're doing it in, in a Bible study or you're doing it in a sermon, there's always something there. There's, there's this sort of like thick barrier between you and reality that is easily perceived by people. And it's the reason that, if you read a Luther sermon that that may with Luther's original voice and a lot of things that we don't have access to, but certainly in his own time may have seemed absolutely scintillating to him and to his hearers, it, it falls flat. I mean, there's a part of preaching, I think, is the 
the requirement and the burden of timeliness, not of novelty or innovation necessarily, but of timeliness. And when you're reading somebody else's stuff, much less reading your own stuff, there's a flatness that is just really apparent. Well, yeah. And, you know, just as, just as in historical curiosity, you, you wonder how it really was received at the time. Yeah. Um, right. You know, because there's really no way of knowing. And uh, there's not like they're going to say no to Luther as far as publishing something. <laughs> right. And, and this could apply to any, you know, historic uh, speech or anything. You know, how was it really? How was it really perceived? You know, Alexander against the the mutiny. Although that one probably the greatest speech in, in history, but neither here nor there. <laughs> although although I mean, or to quote, say, Whitfield, you know, you can print my sermons, but they're going to miss the the th- the thunder and the lightning. You know, the that the very presentation itself is something that is a part of preaching that you just yeah. cannot reproduce in in print. Well now that just sounds enthusiast, Zelwyn. <laughs> probably. <laughs> But I mean, maybe maybe Luther himself, I'm sure, was a very engaging speaker. You know, I mean, to, to have his sermons used in this way and to make the impact that they did, I don't think that he was just monotoning in the pulpit. You know, he probably was a very dynamic kind of preacher. In fact, some of the, the pictures that we see of him show him, you know, ju- you know, gesticulating and being very active in the way that he's preaching. So, right. I mean, it's engaging in itself, Right. I think it's also sort of humbling about anybody's preaching is is to realize that it's it's meant for that live dynamic in the room as you're speaking the words as you're proclaiming and anything else no matter how eloquent you were or how interested the audience was any other form of your preaching printed recorded, even on video. So you have what feels like a live experience, but is not. Nothing else actually compares to the form in which it's intended by the Lord, which is live person to person. Everything else is a substitute, some better, some worse, but everything else is really a substitute for that. And that thing that's actually intended by the Lord is gone when the sermon ends. Everything else is kind of a a shadow of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is why like uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, for example, speaks against even having tape recordings in his own day, because he says Mm. it's just it really is just not the same. You just can't you can't replicate the same experience and the same moment that you can just actually being there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that, you know, that's one of the many reasons why just sitting and reading sermons is not sufficient. You know, there. It's just one more reason why you must be in the assembly on the Lord's Day. And now let's talk about reading Luther sermons for the next forty minutes. Yeah, exactly, but... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but... Well, I, I mean, I. It, it's not like there's nothing to be gained, but it's kind of like it's like online church, right? You know? well, mean, yeah, exactly. Well, that, yeah, that's the point. I mean, it's, you're it's, you're it's, getting it's, more it's than if you were sitting there watching, you know, Friends reruns. You're getting more of the Lord's <laughs> word. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't know if that's a, that's a taste that any of us has here or any of our listeners, hopefully not, but you know, um, <laughs> however, it's not what the Lord intended that you should go to church that way. Same thing with sermons. There, it, there are divinely chosen media and the word per se is actually has its own medium, which is live person to person proclamation. That is really not something to be neglected 
And so if we're reading Luther's sermons, we're getting something. It's We know more about Luther than if we didn't have the words at all. We know more about his style and all the stuff we're going to talk about later on. But we, we, we do lose something. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that kind of covers everything, don't you think, Willie? Do you want to start uh, yeah. breaking into the sermons, or what do you want to do here? Well, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, the specific audience here for the church apostles, kind of the scope of, of his apostles. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, they cover the entirety of the Christian year, including a lot of days that generally people don't go to church anymore, like like Sunday. And, well, uh... <laughs> right. Like at all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, basically nobody's like, guys, I'm, I'm just so psyched for Pentecost Tuesday, you know. So for each of those days, so each Sunday, each festival day, including Pentecost Tuesday, there is an epistle and a gospel reading. And these are largely going to be the same thing, largely as what we now know as the one year lectionary. So that set of readings is how postal literature exists, right? In a church like various reformed churches on the continent, you know, you have Lexio Continua of various books of scripture, so you don't have postals. Postal literature lives off the fact of this conventional set of readings. Yeah. It's why we have, it's why if you're using the one year, you can go back and you can use Luther or Walter or whatever. Well, and, and I think that, I mean, that's really the the big difference. It's the, it's, it's ordered according to the church year where you get a very similar thing among the reformed at the same time, uh, or, you know, um, or a little bit later where, but, but it's just Lectio Continua, but the form really looks the same. Mm-hmm. It's just the the it's just the how it's organized right. and, and why you're using certain texts. That that's really the thing that separates apostle from I don't, I don't know what do you want to call it a preached commentary. Yeah, yeah, and they'll often be called commentaries when they're sold today. It, it, but it, exactly, yeah, yeah, we yeah we hear commentary. We think that like Calvin just sat down and literally wrote everything, which I mean to a degree he did, but in large part it's 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 what he preached as well. Right, right, right. At a at a prestigious amount at that. Yeah, it is it is pretty impressive. You gotta give it that. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing to know about Luther's postles is that the first half of them, as far as we can tell, were never preached. And so they clock in at absolutely enormous length if you were to try to speak them aloud. The stuff from largely the Trinity season, the second half of the church year, were so far as we can tell, actually preached. And therefore, they're a lot shorter. They're also much less verbose and much more direct in the points that they make. Whereas yeah. the stuff from the Winter Postal is all over the place. This is a good historical note that in this case, Luther is not self-indulgent. He actually does craft things for, meant for actual ears differently yeah. than, than what he's simply committing to the page. Right. And I think that's important. He considers audience and uh, considers what they're, uh, let's say, able to bear. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And that's, that's a very important thing to pick up on. So it, it is, a, it's very helpful that we have the two examples. Right. Well, we're up on the first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelman Heidi, Adam Coons talking about Luther's church apostles. Well, guys, I think we did a good introduction to just exactly what apostle is. We know the kind of themes that the apostles are going to cover, at least thematically insofar as we here understand the first-year lectionary and the, and the uh, liturgical life of the church. So now let's start to take a look at the apostles themselves, what, what the content looks like, what Luther's methodology is. Uh, Adam, you want to take yeah. it away? Yeah, so we've, we've picked out a couple from throughout the church year. And so if you are looking at the American edition of Luther, uh, we're pulling from each of the five different volumes of church apostles. And that gives you a sense of the breadth of his preaching style. Because one big thing that you notice stylistically is that if he actually preached it, not only are the sermons, as we said in the last segment, shorter, they also are much tighter in their organization, right? So I could preach for 10 minutes or for 30 minutes and be sort of disorganized and diffuse even at 10 minutes. So just because something is shorter doesn't mean it's better organized. I would say that broadly, the stuff from the winter apostles, that first half of the church year, is largely verse-by-verse exposition of scripture, which obviously has its benefits, but will result, as you read these things, in not really knowing where things are going, which gives you a sense of, even as you read them, and I, I, I so I don't know what it was like to to if anyone was reading these things aloud, let's say devotionally, you really have no idea what's going to happen next. Whereas when you're doing things that are more tightly constructed, we don't know exactly how long it took Luther to state those words. And and we have them as, in some cases, transcriptions that were then checked by Luther. So they started as just live preaching, not as a manuscript that anyone began with. But in those, he'll tell you at the front end of the sermon, this is what we're going to do. He doesn't necessarily do the public speaking, you know, trope of at the end, tell them what you told them, but he will pretty much always start out in the things that were actually preached by saying, this is what we're going to talk about today. So on Pentecost, on Acts 2, he's going to say, we're talking about the office that is, you know, what is the Holy Spirit about? What is the Holy Spirit accomplishing? The office of the Holy Spirit. In the winter stuff, you get Titus 2 on Christmas Day, for instance. We'll talk about it in a little more detail. And you don't know where it's, that's going to go. It's, uh, there's a ton in there, right? And so it's sort of enriching in, in the sense of if you're already a fan 
and you're like, yep, I'm just here. Like, even if this, you know, live stream lasts four hours, I'm sticking around, you know, but <laughs> not everybody's able to do that. And the organization is just kind of not there. It feels, it feels like a Joe Rogan style podcast in, <laughs> in the winter possible. <laughs> well, I, 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 I think especially with like the Titus two sermon, at least my, my impression of it was, is that, you know, as it's going along verse by verse, word by word, it really does take this kind of running commentary feel to it. So yeah, it is rather disjointed. It is rather kind of, I'm just, okay, I'm going to explain what this means. And then, you know, and then I'll explain what this means. And I mean, yeah, that has value, but when it comes to being actually preached, I mean, even, even guys nowadays who preach these kinds of sermons more regularly speak against this kind of a presentation, you know, because right. it, it really has nothing to, like you say, to hold it together. And we, we, I mean, we, we are fans at Word Fitly of longer sermons and more detailed exposition of scripture in sermons. However, I think that has to be rather tightly organized. So when, I mean, this was kind of a well-known thing among later Lutherans. So when Gerhardt talks about Luther's church postals, he uses two adjectives. One is catechetical. That is that they're constantly reinforcing Christian teaching, which I think is a massive, probably their greatest strength. The other one he uses sounds like it's a flattering thing, but it really was not. He describes them as heroic. So in the same <laughs> sense that in the same sense that in the Odyssey, you know, there's Odysseus and, and you love Odysseus and he's a hero, but it's like, why does it take him 10 years to get home? You know, uh, he's all over the place. He goes past Ithaca many times. Why can't he get home? That's how Gerhard is describing Luther's method. That it's all over the place. Uh, You're like one wow, uh, miss miss me with that modern interpretation of Odysseus, but that's okay. <laughs> point, point taken. But uh, he had, he had adventures to have. He had he had adventures, you know. So you know, it's like uh, when when are we going to get home? When when are we going to talk to Penelope again? So that's that's the problem especially in the winter postals. It when, might be an issue well, with Luther broadly. It, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think it, it really is an issue with, with him. If we're fair, if, if, we, if we're going to be fair here, that Luther does this at times. <laughs> I, mean, even, yeah. e, mm-hmm. I mean, even like go to the large catechism and look at some of the commandments and you'll find kind of a shorter version of this that happens. Occasionally you want to be like, you okay, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> settle down here. <laughs> He just oh, he's he's, he's going to keep going. Yeah. All all I'm saying is is that when a guy who wrote a like twelve plus volume dogmatic says you're kind of dragging on a little bit, <laughs> maybe you need to rein it in a little. You know. Well, well yeah. L- Luther could have used a, an editor, but he threw an inkwell at Melanchthon or something. <laughs> well, I, I they're taking donations to preserve the spot where that happened somewhere. <laughs> Um, I, I think the point about Gerhardt is well taken because your experience of reading Gerhardt is, is of extreme detail and clarity, but not of being exhausting. So Gerhardt dispenses with, you know, why are the scriptures in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic fairly quickly, whereas you can get 400 page volumes on that from the same section of the library. So I think that length, whether it's in a sermon or a book, is not necessarily an indicator of being too diffuse or wandering around too much. Right. It might be, it often is, but it, it but it isn't necessarily if you've planned out how you're going to get from point A to point B. But that's the, that's what you get with, with some of Luther is that he, I don't think he, he 
really planned as point A, as point A falls into his lap, and then he ends up at whatever point he ends up on. Yeah. Well, I mean, was this was this kind of like Augustine style preaching where you just kind of get up and go? Or I mean, I'm assuming Luther did some preparation, right? Well, (laughs) well, of course, there's preparation, but I mean, the guy just, you know, he's riding in a rage half the time anyway. (laughs) So, you know, that's what you get. Little little known fact is that the Counter Reformation interpretation of Luther is alive and well on this podcast, <laughs> um, at least among some. So. <laughs> but, and maybe and maybe in Luther's defense here, to say something positive, one of the things I did find helpful about his Titus two sermon, um, mm-hmm. even though it was so long, was is that he did have a very nice habit of explaining something, talking about what it didn't, you know, what it meant. And then, you know, applying it in very concrete ways. And he would do that over and yep. over and over and over yep. again. That well, was very I, good. I totally, I, I, I think the greatest strength of his sermons, whether the, the longer ones or the shorter ones, is that they really do take seriously the primary task of the preacher is to teach right. the meaning of the scripture. So sometimes he's doing that at a very slow pace as on Christmas Day with Titus 2, and sometimes he's doing it much more elegantly and concisely, but he's always teaching. Well, and, and, here's, the, and here's, the, I mean, here's the greater thing to get with Luther is we have, as we always talk about on the podcast, we have this sort of theology via platitude or bumper sticker theology, mm-hmm. and we have unfortunately reduced Luther down to that. And not only Lutherans, but Baptists and, and Calvinists and others have, have sort of done that to him as well where to get a better picture of who Luther is, you actually have to take him, um, in, you know, actually right. read at length what, what he says. And so we, we end up in some circles with a very distorted view of Luther uh, because we want to, is there such a thing as Luther reductionism? I think oh, there yeah. is. Yeah. yeah that's good and, yeah. and so we, you get a much more rounded and much more valuable theologian, a much more real theologian, by actually reading things like the apostles than you do by uh, reading uh, the just uh, meme quotes. Yeah. Well, let me let me put it this way, maybe as a way of uh, you know building on that. What the the meme that we often have of Luther is is you know he takes shots at the Pope. I mean he's doing this all the time where he's speaking about the monks, he's speaking about you know the the priests of his day, he's speaking about the Pope, and he always seems to be saying something very negative. You know you can go online and find the 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 insult generator if you really want to you know right. find some of this sort of right. stuff but what that kind of hides what the meme hides is the fact that when luther is doing that and you see this in this sermon it's always with whatever he's talking about in mind so when he's saying like you know what does it mean to have this christian virtue well here's what it doesn't mean you know because you see that in the pope and and all these various people and the monks but right. here's what it actually means right yeah right right Right. Yeah. It's, it's always a point of reference and it's part of consistent, timely, certainly uh, more applicable to his time than ours, application. And what you don't see is a divorce between teaching and application. He's teaching and then he's applying. He's applying and then he's teaching why he just applied it that way. And so there's a constant interplay of teaching and application. They really are inseparable from each other. So things also that turn into enormous theoretical problems in Lutheran theology during his later life, but certainly after his death, such as the third use of the law. If you look at how he talks about this Titus 2 reading, 
that the grace of God has appeared banishing ungodliness, he has no problem simply explaining that as God's grace has appeared in Christ so that we should believe in him and also live lives that are pleasing to him. He really doesn't worry about the fact that that is an indicative and also an imperative in his preaching. He just does it. He doesn't talk around how, you know, we're not saved thereby or anything. He contrasts, in fact, a Christian life of godliness with an unchristian life that because it's not founded on trust in Christ, like the Pope or the monks, that's his application. If it's not founded on trust in Christ, it therefore will result not in God, in a life of godliness, but in merely external works and create hypocrites. So he doesn't contrast a life that is God-pleasing and seeks unironically to be God-pleasing with, you know, but but remember, you're not saved by your works. He contrasts a God-pleasing Christian life with a life of hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that, see, that's a perfect example of actual Luther versus, you know, meme Luther. distilled Luther. Yeah, meme Luther. I, yeah, I don't want to say, I don't like saying meme Luther because I don't want to disparage memes. But yeah, I mean, you kind of have to. And I can't put another uh, descriptor to it because we'll get sued for slander or something. Right. And so, you know, uh, but yes, yeah. So meme Luther, and you know, I, I, I frankly, I, I find things like uh, the, like Luther's insult generator as uh, sort of unbecoming. Not that I don't like a good insult every now and then, but just because it makes <laughs> our religion look silly, yeah, and petty, and petty. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't want us to look petty and sure. gross. Sure, I like it. What you said, not the generator. You know what I mean, <laughs> right? And I get it. I get it. I get it, boys. It's it's in good fun, and I understand that. But you know, that's you got to think about how the world perceives you sometimes. Right, right. I, I I think also like when you when you're thinking of when when you're not actually reading Luther, and especially not reading things that he either wrote and or preached for kind of relatively you know normal people in his place and time. You, you get a very strange understanding of him. So like if you look at his sermon from the fourth Sunday in Lent on John 6, that is openly and clearly and almost only an allegorical reading of John 6. It's very <laughs> strange. Right, yeah. All you know about Luther is, well, he revived the historical grammatical method and he, and he did, <laughs> but he also sometimes yeah. said, well, so, yeah. the grass is representative of the Jews, you know, and goes from there. So it does, you know, just being satisfied with other people's representations of Luther doesn't prepare you to read the church postals because you find him doing more and stranger things in preaching than what you might imagine. Well, and I think, I think that's partly that surprise that we might have at Luther allegorizing so openly like that is because I think we think of Luther almost like ourselves, whereas we sometimes forget that he's very much coming out of, you know, this late medieval allegorizing kind of culture and he's reacting against it. And he's certainly far more restrained than say some of the other exegesis that's going on right. at the same time. But it, it is a little jarring if you're not ready for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean that in that, you know, again, that that is, do you view Luther as the last medieval scholastic or the first modern man? Right. And uh, and really, he's sort of both. And you, you have to take, I mean, you have to understand that there's a reason, a very good historical reason why Luther's sermons 
sound so different from John Calvin's, for example. Sure. Although I'll uh, I'll go on record as saying that when it comes to allegorizing, I mean, obviously I'm not a fan, but the thing that I <laughs> the thing that I just don't do it. Yeah, don't do just, it. Zell and Heidi says don't don't allegory has no place in the church according to Zell. <laughs> you're not letting me finish here. You're you're, you're turning me, me into meme Zellen, which is of course usual. But um, <laughs> but whenever these guys allegorize, especially Luther, and especially like even in the early church when they went on some even even higher forms of allegory, you know, just high flights of fancy kind of a thing. It's always very specifically moral kind of applications in mind. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a legitimate practical reason for it, an immediate practical reason. It's it's not just simply to sound good and to get them them thumbs up reactions and uh, you know for your dopamine receptors. <laughs> or it's not just saying like this is this is Jesus and you know I found him kind of a thing. No, this is a. a I mean, it's kind of one of those things. It's like saying this is why this is a Christian virtue. You know, I'm using this kind of admittedly kind of far-fetched explanation to show you why then you should live in this way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I don't think you have to even call it a far-fetched explanation. It's a, it's a homiletical tool that's very valuable. And <laughs> as long as it doesn't, obs- and, and as long as it's not taken as obscuring what would be a cl- the clear <laughs> meaning of the text, it's not necessarily bad. But, but it has been used by some people to completely obscure the plain meaning of a text. Sure. Um, at least in patristic literature, you can have layers of meaning. For some people today, it's either allegorical gobbledygook, or, or you know, you can only preach in a way that is just. I mean, I don't want to say bare exegesis because your sermon should be exegesis, but it's just kind of a re- a restating of what the text says, yeah. and that's not necessarily the homiletical goal either, because although apostles again very similar to commentaries, they really aren't at the end of the day. And, and, and a sermon isn't at the end of the day. And, and so you, you can, you can have both. I mean, I, I don't necessarily see, see an issue with it, but you just have to be careful not to be, I don't know. What's the word? What's a nice, what's a nice upper Midwestern word to use? Zellin? Goofy? <laughs> different. 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 Odd. Different. There we go. That's a good one. <laughs> I, I, I think I think that like when he does John six, he's much closer to doing what Paul does in Galatians four yeah. than he is to saying, Hey, look, in John six I found, you know, the sacrament of confirmation or to bring it closer yeah. to home, baptism or the Lord's Supper, which is what often we're doing when we're trying to allegorize today. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, yeah, it becomes this sort of exegetical seek and find. Right. And a scavenger hunt or something like that. Um, and I don't really, I mean, I, we know sort of where it comes from. It's just odd. It's just odd that it's a big thing to do that. I don't know. Everybody gets quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think Zellin's point that it's used for more, for moral purposes is important because it also gives you a sense that uh, Luther's preaching is using the exposition of scripture, whether he's doing that allegorically or not for a variety of things that make sense pastorally, but don't make sense theologically according, not just to sort of memes that we have about him, but you know, well, it is the sermon exactly the same thing as other means of grace where ultimately it's simply delivering Christ's salvation and forgiveness. Of course it, it does do that and it does lots of other things. Right. So the use of allegory includes 
some of those other things, training in righteousness or a comprehensive yeah. understanding of salvation history. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why you have to look at it as a homiletical tool. And I don't mean that to, to denigrate it either. It's just to say that it's used in this in, in a in a in the context of a sermon or, or teaching, we'll say, let's just say an exhortation mm-hmm. with a specific goal in mind to teach something. And that's okay. That's how that's how texts are used. It's it's just, you know, what what we tend to react against here is this idea that of some really kind of random obscure pulling out of a of a theme that you're just looking for. So you just so twist it uh, to, to find it there mm-hmm. because that that's what you think the goal of a sermon is. Well, and, and the thing that I think I react against the most, and maybe I kind of overreact, I'll admit it. But the thing that I react against the most is when allegorizing is presented as the exegesis that, you know, yeah. I, yeah. I have pulled this yeah, exactly, out exactly. and now this is what it means without, you know, and I've discovered it kind of thing. I think that really does, does violence yeah. to the biblical text. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, and just kind of as a final point too, even I think Paul in Galatians, when he says, you know, to you, to speak allegorically, I think he is still, as we're saying, you know, showing a moral point out of all of this. And so I think, like you say, allegory used in that way is certainly a beneficial tool and one that is within our arsenal, but we also well, don't want to abuse and, and I it. Think, I mean, and, and I do think allegory is, you know, can we, it can sort of be considered neglected because sometimes the way we see it today is, is kind of in, a, in, a, in an absurd light, but, you know, Pilgrim's Progress was effective. Sure. Right? <laughs> I mean, allegory uh, throughout history has been an effective means by which to teach people, so we shouldn't just totally write it off by any means. Now you're bunion posting. I don't know what to do with that. That's so. right. <laughs> well, we are. And with that, we are at the second break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi and Adam Coons talking Luther's Church Postals. Well, a fun discussion thus far, but let's uh, let's dig into a, a particular postal. Adam, uh, where are we going? Uh, we're going to look at the sermon that he gave on Pentecost on Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And that is because I could have picked some others, but this is a particularly good example of what I think is a really well-constructed sermon. He doesn't mess around, kind of, you know, I'm not sure where I'm going to go, and I'm going to talk about the Pope for two or three minutes and then go into something else, as he does in other places. You know, nobody bats a thousand. But here, he 
tells you right up front, here's what we're going to be talking about. I'm talking about the office of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit come to do? And uh, we, we opened the episode with a quote from that sermon. So when he does that, He's now going to state that fairly clearly and concisely, but then explain that at length throughout the sermon. So the sermon's main purpose, you go away from it with what, you know, is going to be called in homiletical literature, basically a handle. Like I can, if I'm somebody listening, you know, I don't need necessarily a printed title in the bulletin, but I know when the preacher's done preaching what he said. I could tell him. It very basically, obviously, what he said if he asked me or someone else asked me. And so if you can come away from a sermon, I think, with that sense of, okay, this is what I said if you're the preacher, or this is what I heard if you're the hearer, that's really helpful. And Luther does that very well in this sermon because he says, I'm going to tell you about the office of the Holy Spirit. He tells you what the Holy Spirit does. He also tells you clearly that the Holy Spirit doesn't completely extinguish sin altogether when he comes to his people, but that that work of the of sanctification will will go forward more and more. Luther's words, not mine, will go forward more and more. And so you have a clear sense, okay, this is what sanctification is. This is what sanctification is not. And then at the very end, he has this kind of marvelous apostrophe, which is when you talk to somebody who's not there, of the Pope and the monks and the bishops that you know, they need to preach these things too. And so, (laughs) you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, it's like, you know, it's like basically he's tweeting, like, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, um, (laughs) but but it's fine and it's, and it's good. And it's, it's, it's most of all, I think clear. I think it's, it's worth saying here too, that compared to some of the other sermons, which he's been preaching, this is much more in the realm of what you would call a topical sermon. Right. Like yeah. when he, he actually starts out, <clears throat> sorry, I got a tickle in my throat. He actually starts out the sermon by saying, you know, we're going to cover the details of this text in other sermons. And right. so we're going to, we're going to focus on some of these other things right now. Yeah. But I think that, you know, that's, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, you know, to say, yeah, totally. I'm going to talk about this, you know, kind of in more thematic detail. And then next week, I'll kind of go back to my verse by verse or something like that, you know, to have that kind of variety, even that I mean, that's something that I've seen, you know, even even in these five sermons, the the variety with which Luther preached is kind of amazing, actually. So, right. Yeah, the arrangement. And I mean, the later tradition is going to call something like this Acts 2 sermon synthetic, in that the divisions of the text, the way the preacher kind of deals out the text and its meaning to the hearers is not necessarily taken strictly from the text. When right. those divisions are taken strictly from the text, that's going to be called analytical, which Luther also sometimes does, although not nearly so often as being either synthetic or the other option, which would be more like the Titus II sermon we talked about earlier, is what gets called homiletical by the later tradition. That is, I'm just running through the text you know, sort of Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel style. (laughs) Interestingly, that running through the text, Calvary Chapel style, doesn't get largely picked up by Lutherans. Lutherans generally will either go for, I'm going to take my major divisions from the text, analytic, or I'm going to be what is called in other traditions and other times topical, or they would say synthetic. And I'm just going to 
you know, I'm going to teach about marriage because the gospel is the wedding at Cana, or I'm going to teach about the Holy Spirit because it's Pentecost and just go from there. And one thing that synthetic sermons have going for them is that they are generally extremely clear because the guy thought not just about, okay, what does the text mean, but also precisely what am I trying to communicate today? Right. And that way you don't end up with just a lecture on uh, history in the year 60 AD or something like that. Right. Right. Or 1517. Right. As the case may be. Even even Walther, like when we talked about his sermons and like his pastoral, you know, he was actually kind of recommending this kind of thing. Like, how do you cover the the whole counsel of God yeah. within the lectionary, within the, you know, the, the, the calendar year? And so there is certainly a place for this kind of preaching. I'm, I mean, I'm not speaking against it at all. I'm just remarking on the, the variety which, which, which Luther has. Yeah, so. right. And I, I think that variety, that variety in form can be helpful or fruitful or surprising. There's probably a form that comes more naturally to different preachers that one tends to gravitate toward. Homiletical, that kind of verse by verse or even word by word expositional style seems to come rather naturally to Luther. You also find it in his commentaries, which again are lectures, first of all. And so the that that probably came more naturally to him, but when he is doing something more synthetic, it is it, it, it's good. It's not. I mean, there are better synthetic preachers that I've that I've read or that I've seen, but I think he does it well. And it's also proof that you know you you can be more versatile maybe than you think you are if you start thinking about okay, what 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 kind of style do I actually want to use for this specific topic or this specific text? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I think maybe, and maybe just speaking in very practical modern terms kind of a thing, you know, sometimes I think we feel kind of a dissatisfaction with our preaching, or maybe we feel that we're kind of stuck in a rut and maybe one very basic way to shake that up a little bit would be to try one of these different styles, you know, to, to, if you're, if you're kind of a synthetic preacher, do something much more, you know, analytic, you know, or much more even verse by verse. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be rough. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah, but, but it it might actually help us grow and become better at what we're doing in the other styles too. Right. Right. A couple, a couple other stylistic things, or maybe it's deeper than that. One, one is that when he preaches on Trinity Sunday in a text that I think is somewhat hard to preach because inside the Bible, Romans 11, 33 to 36, is uh, this sort of explosion of praise and blessing by Paul at the end of a chapter, like at the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10 in Romans, at the end of 11, he also has this doxology. And it's a little hard to apportion that because you're like, okay, well, what what do I do? Or what what is the tone of my voice as I preach this? And on Trinity Sunday, I think a lot of preachers are very tempted to give some sort of either dry disquisition on the Trinity or, or maybe and or provide some kind of analogy. And, and that's, that's usually where sermons and teaching on the Trinity goes to die is when we start speaking analogically um, about something that scripture simply teaches uh, not by analogy, but by way of assertion. So when he's talking about Romans 11 he's going to use this sense of incomprehensibility or mystery to God 
but he's going to distinguish God's mysteries, things that are not revealed to us, such as how does predestination work from things that God does clearly reveal, which is the nature of the Trinity. And so that explanation is both didactically clear. You have a clear sense of there's one God in three persons after you read that sermon. You also have a clear sense of this is something it's actually fruitful for a Christian to know. That's why God has revealed it. There are other things he has not revealed. And this is really the division that Luther's making from the text, this division between what God does reveal and what he does not reveal. What he has not revealed is his, the secret things, you know, belong to him. But what he has revealed is for us and for our salvation. So he has this, I think, very solid evangelical purpose that he puts in terms of that specific teaching of the Trinity. Yeah, and also his emphasis over and over and over again in that sermon about dealing with things as they are, not as we want them to be or as we imagine yeah. them to be. Right. You know, and this is where again where he, you know, he brings back in his monks and, and the Pope and stuff like that. We <laughs> might say this is just a meme again, but yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but he has the point. Like it's not about my own self-invented imagination about who I think God is or who what I think pleases him, but yeah. in fact what he has in fact said. Right. Right. So. Right. And I, yeah, and I I think it I think it's because his experience of historical opponents is sort of like if a pastor kept bringing up, you know, the the idolatry of youth sports in his right. sermons, it would be understandable why he's doing that. Maybe he should find a few other applications that he wants to bring up, but it's, it's sort of understandable why he's doing that because it's, it's ripping his church apart slowly. And so it's something he thinks about a lot, you know? So. Sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but a, a, a stylistic thing, purely stylistic, not theological that, that Luther does that I think is very effective and probably contributed to his dynamism when these things were preached in the sermons that were were preached is that he uses what you would call a, a a paratactic style that is he he sets words and phrases and clauses and sentences side by side he doesn't have a lot of involved hard to understand or hard to follow phrases or clauses or sentences he'll set things next to each other. And so he's very prone to making lists to say the Pope and the monks and the bishops and the friars, right? And so you get them as a list of people. You don't get an exhaustive analysis of their differences. And what that does for a hearer is it creates very clear categories when you set things side by side that way. If you tried to give lots of different nuances about, okay, well, this is how the Pope is different from the monks or the bishops, it really wouldn't be helpful. Or if I wanted to set side by side both uh, the fact that the apostles preached, but also as Luther explains in the Sermon on Acts 2, you know, what does it mean that they, they go into all the world? Does that mean they actually got everywhere? Luther's aware of lands that have been discovered that don't have Christians. So he knows that, you know, the apostles didn't didn't get to, you know, uh, Patagonia or something. But when he's explaining these things, he's going to set side by side a very clear explanation, usually with either its antithesis, especially if he's speaking morally, or he'll set side by side. This is what something is and this is what it is not. 
And so you don't, you don't get in the sermons, you know, a lot of, let me say this, but then let me qualify it in four different ways. You'll get something, this is clearly what something is, and this is what it is not. Now moving on to something else. I think that enables him to do a lot more teaching in the space of a sermon than if I provide you with something, but then I qualify it in four different ways. Sure. Well, I would I would argue that that's also a function of just speaking for the ear mm-hmm. rather than speaking for the eye. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of guys kind of unintentionally when they sit down to like write a sermon, for example, because they're getting ready for Sunday morning and they want to prepare their manuscript, mm-hmm. it's going to look really, really good on the page. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what is writing for the eye, you know, because the way that the eye understands language, the way that we read language is much different than the way that the ear process is something which is being spoken. The, the ear loves repetition, for example, even what seems to the eye to be intolerable repetition, like, you know, saying the same thing over and over and over and over again, almost yeah. exactly the same words. You're saying, you know, get to the point if you're reading it. But when you're listening to it, it actually sounds very engaging because that's what the ear likes. And so in that sense, you know, if we're going to, you know, if you're going to write a sermon, you know, maybe you should write it out loud or something like that, you know, or or to write it in the medium that you're going to present it in, because then it has a much more natural flow to it. And I think that's what Luther really truly understands here. Right. 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 And it, and it, it helps the hearer know this is a, this is a big point in homiletical literature that's going to come after Luther. Luther doesn't have a sort of comprehensive homiletical treatise. I mean, he usually doesn't have a comprehensive treatise on a given topic, but people who come after him will say, because the primary human faculty that's engaged by preaching is not simply the ear as the, as the, the sense organ, but above all the memory, I'm going to stir up your memory and I'm going to engage your memory and imprint things on your memory by virtue of such things as repetition, by virtue of things such as a memorable tone or a memorable delivery. So rather than trying to communicate as you might when you're writing a book, as much possible information as I can in the space of the book or the essay, if I'm writing for both the ear and the memory that is engaged as the ear takes in those sound waves, I'm going to write so that things can be impressed there on that memory or stirred up in that memory. And when someone has that skill that Luther Evans's, especially in the, the, the summer apostles, the stuff that was probably actually preached, you can tell that he knows how to engage those things extremely effectively. Well, and you see this even in the word itself. I mean, think of the Psalms, for example, and the, the very idea of parallelism where they say one thing and then immediately follow it with, you know, saying the same thing, but in different words. Yep. You know, because the Psalms were written for the ear and not for the eye, they thrive in this kind of repetition, this kind of building, this kind of memory, this impressing on the memory, which is why Psalms like, you know, say Psalm 23 become so memorable for us because mm-hmm. of the way in which they are said and not just what the information that they are conveying. Right, right, right. exactly. Willie, you're really quiet. No, I'm just letting you two go, uh, you know, <laughs> talk it out. No, it's again, it's, um, you know, what we're seeing is, is what we unpacked in the beginning, that he is seems to be conscious of of his audience, what was meant for actual ears, 
or hearts, you know, even is uh, is different than than that which is just uh, written. So there are again very practical lessons that we can learn uh, from the apostles. I I think it's very important as we read works like this to think of them as practical works, and uh, and as things that we can perhaps learn something from, not merely to imitate. Although the scriptures do do, do teach us to imitate, you know those those above us, but. But rather, you know, just to see on a practical level, how does Luther engage his audience? Uh, why does he say things this way? For what reason does he take this scripture and use it in this manner? Why is he talking about certain um, certain theological points here or, thir- or certain uh, cultural points? We, we kind of straddle between uh, uh, two extremes sometimes uh, where we want to say preach like Luther or whoever, you know, pick, pick whoever you're your um, older famous preacher is. And so you mimic him in such a way that you, that you sound like you're from the 16th century as, as you mentioned before, Adam, you know, when just reading uh, one of his sermons aloud from a pulpit, you know, or, you know, you become to where you just sound like a cultural commentator, which again, if you have meme Luther, that's what you think you're getting. But as we see from the actual text, that isn't. Just like anything, especially any historical document, what we always tell you is you have to do the legwork. That if you want to really get into this stuff, you have to read it. And if you want to benefit from it, you, you have to do the, the, the heavy lifting and actually get in there, uh, do the reading, uh, chew on it, and use some discernment with how you use the material. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the things that you can consistently take home from Luther is that he has at the as the basis of his preaching the exposition you know that that explanation and application of holy scripture for the congregation and so things that appear to be theological problems like we talked about how does he talk about the law how does he talk about sanctification do not appear as problematic nor does he give the people the congregation a sense that these are problematic or hard to understand Um, he's simply going to explain them and apply them and he does that consistently, whatever the length, whatever the style, whatever the part of the Christian year. And it really is at the basis of every sermon that I've ever read of his is this teaching of Holy Scripture. That's mainly what the sermon is there to do and to you know, apportion it out as the preacher sees uh, would, would best serve the congregation. Well, very good. Well, guys, we're coming up on the end of the episode. Any, any final words? Well, I think maybe just to reiterate what you said, Willie, you know, We'll we'll include some links in the show notes about you know, to the the books themselves. You know, d- dig into Luther yourself, get a feel for the way that he actually preaches. I think you're going to profit immensely from it. Uh, it is something that you can learn the the art of application and also of speaking to your own time. As long as we're not trying to import his examples into our own, I think it really will be a beneficial exercise for anyone who wants to pursue it. Well, very good. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. Note that the office of a preacher has two parts, teaching and admonishing. Teach those who do not know. Admonish those who do know, so that they do not diminish 
become lazy, or give in, but rather continue against all temptations.